Hello, welcome back. I'm Ryan McLeod and this is episode number 57 of Creative Chit Chat. And this week I'm joined by Ali McGill. Ali trained as an accountant, um, worked in various different businesses. Um, and then we sort of talk about how he ended up getting into design, um, partially through his daughter um, and uh, Mike Press, and how he sort of got sucked into Dundee's creative community, and how sort of design thinking uh, influenced the way that he ran his business and the way that he's developed and, and the work that he's been doing, right through to the way that he runs um, Ashton McGill today. And we sort of also dive into the topic of entrepreneurship um, and being an entrepreneur. It's not a word that I particularly identify with. Um, I don't think it's a word that Ali's probably particularly comfortable with either, um, especially in the sort of definitions of it. And we get into that discussion around that and, and what an entrepreneur is versus designer and the ways of thinking and working in and around that, which is, yeah, a really interesting discussion. And we also get on to talk about Ali's podcast. Um, so he's launched one as part of Ashton McGill. And yeah, there's a whole bunch of episodes. I will also put a link in the show notes to the episode that I did um, on his podcast. Again, talking about design process. Um, yeah, so if you're interested in that sort of stuff in terms of what I do apart from the podcast, um, then yeah, go and check that out. But if you don't already and you are new to the podcast, go and follow us on at CCC Dundee on Twitter and on Instagram and it's facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash CCC Dundee and you can keep up to date with everything that's happening, all the new releases, all the new episodes and news. So let's get into episode number 57 and this is with Ali McGill. So I, I guess the journey to Dundee started in... Probably 1989, when in those days I was a young trainee accountant working for a big accountancy firm, global accountancy firm called Ernst & Young, and I worked in their Perth office, which is a crazy thing to imagine you know, an organisation like that having a Perth office, but they did. And my wife, Joanna, um, was studying med, well, she was studying nursing at Nine Wells. And we decided that we would move in together. And because she was at Nine Wells, we came to Dundee um, and bought a flat right, up on Paradise Road, the amazingly named Paradise Road, which was just, being in Dundee at that time was fantastic. Um, very different city to the city that it is now. And, and we, we lived, our daughter was born in November 92. And a, a few months later, we moved to Perth. Um, and that was Dundee for us for a while, although we had relatives in Dundee. Um, I, I wasn't really spending any time. I'd left Ernst & Young by then, went to work for a business in Perth, one of our clients. Um, I went off on my entrepreneurial journey, um, which is a word I'm, as we were talking about earlier, a word I'm, I'm never comfortable with. But um, society kind of demands that word at times. Um, the 90s were a whirlwind of business education and I didn't really... So this is no longer sort of focused around accounting, is that moving beyond that or is it still... Yeah, that in so in 93 I got hired by one of our clients to go and be their financial controller, which is kind of the progression as an accountant. You know, you train at a firm, you qualify, you go out, if you leave the firm 
um, you go out into the world and become somebody's accountant and that's the chance I got and this was a business in Perth the owner was a really entrepreneurial guy and um, I think at that time he owned his main business was a roofing and construction company we owned a computer cabling business to show how let's date this computer cabling business um, and that, that was probably it in 1992 and then over the next 10 years we turned that into a group of businesses and I think by 95 I was the group managing director so he's, he obviously saw something in me he gave me a bunch of opportunities um, which I took and, and consumed and, and learned um, a heck of a lot along the way a lot of scars and bruises and <laughs> stories from those days um, but it was a really interesting time in my life I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I was at school. Um, and back in the 80s, careers advice was kind of non-existent. So nobody nobody at school said to me, you're good at these things, you should do this. I was interested in economics, behavioural economics, why people did the things that they did. Um, I happened to be good with numbers. So I ended up being channeled down accounts and economics at school. Um, and that's why I ultimately ended up um, starting to work as an accountant. Didn't go to university. I left school at the end of fifth year. Um, I had a place at, Dun at what was then the Bell Street College of Technology in Dundee to do to study, to do a degree in accounting and economics, and I got terrible grades in fifth year. So I had to go back to school and do sixth year. <laughs> um, but I kind of fell into this world of accounting, not because I ever wanted to really be an accountant, but just because th these were the things I happened to be good at. Um, and was there like a sort of enjoyment factor there for you in the sort of crunching of the numbers and dealing with that sort of side of things? Have you? Fitted, I mean, is that still an enjoyable part of? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I happen to be really good at it, um, and I don't know why. I don't know if that's because I was well taught, because it was an aptitude that I had. Um, but for me, it was always for me for me studying accounting was was about more than just the numbers. So I can add them up, you know, I can make them look the way they need to look. But the thing that really interested me was understanding them and interpreting them and being able to help business owners understand what that actually meant. Because the thing I've learned over the last 30 years or so is that like a lot of people don't know what these accounts mean. And I've seen that particularly in the last six months as we launched our accounting business. You know, we'll sit with people and we'll, we'll open up the software we use to run their business we'll have a look at zero or whichever package it is and and actually some people don't know where the profit and loss account is on that and that, as an accountant that's the number that's the default place for me to go i see that a, a lot of people are just managing cash so my job i, I kind of see my job as being to help people understand what these numbers mean and bring them to life and if we can do that and bring them to life and help people to understand it, then they can start to make more informed decisions about their business, their life, why they do what they do. Um, and I think that's probably the, the core of why I still love doing that job today. Like if, if, my, if my job was simply to sit in an office all day and crunch numbers, I'd be banging my head against the wall. But the fact that we can use technology to do a huge amount of that now, um, and, and most of my time is actually not about actually crunching numbers now. It's about doing the added value bit with people. So it's making that connection with people and seeing the difference that you can have. Yeah, it is. And it's, it's been able to... It's a really interesting thing that happens regularly now is people 
who, when they first came to us and, and started to work with us a few months ago, they would they just had no understanding, no concept of these numbers. They were just maybe on a spreadsheet and often those receipts were in a box and they would trot up to their accountant at the end of the year and then nine months later they'd get some kind of statement back that they couldn't read but they signed because it had to be you know submitted the next month. Um, because we spend time essentially teaching people, helping people to understand what these things mean. Twice this week somebody said to me, I love this, I love this. I now understand my business in a way that I never did before. And that's when I start to get a lot of satisfaction out of what we do. Because I think like from like personal experience and sort of running slurp and doing mm-hmm. the accounts, like I have an accountant, but it's that it's that thing where the accounts are just a thing you need to get done. It's a box you need to tick. You pass the numbers off and you get a bill that you pay HMRC at the mm-hmm. end of the year and that's it. It's sort of it's done, it's out of the way. There is no there's no real value that you get back from that. Yeah. It's it's not an enjoyable process in any way. Yeah, you're right. And that's so that kind of work is what we call compliance work. Because you're doing something because you're helping someone comply with the law, the tax legislation or whatever. Um and and there's not a lot of enjoyment for anyone in that process. Um and it's and because there's not a lot of enjoyment and there's little value attached to it, people don't value the work. Now, the beauty of technology today is you can automate an awful lot of that. So we take advantage of that. We automate as much of it as we can so we can take what available budget the client has and uses the majority of that to help them. To help them, I mean, a lot of what I do is coaching and teaching and mentoring and support. And, you know, we run a Slack channel for our clients that people can just jump into and they do on a daily basis and just ask some questions. And sometimes other clients answer them, which is great. Um, so we're trying to rethink this, the whole world of accounting and what that means to any size of business. Because it doesn't have to be about compliance. It doesn't have to be stuffy. It doesn't have to be something you should be afraid of. Because if we deliver it right, then it, it can be something that enhances your business, your life, you know, your financial status. Hmm. So, I mean, there's, we've jumped a big <laughs> sort of yeah. uh, chunk of your career there. But, I mean, from what you're saying and from what I know of, of the work that you've done, people seem to be at the core of mm. a lot of the things that you've done throughout your career. Yeah. Do you think that's true? Absolutely. And, you know, before, probably before 2008, 2008 was the first time I came across this term service design. At that time, I was running an accounting business in Aberdeen, and we started to work a project with Robert Gordon University. And back then, they had a service run out of the art school, which was called C4DI, Centre for Design and Innovation, which was, to all intents and purposes, a service design consultancy. And up until that point, I had described the type of business I run as being customer-centric. That was the best way I could find to describe what we did and why we did it. So back to the 90s, you know, when it was roofing and computer cabling and at one point we owned a fruit um, winery, believe <laughs> it or not, and a chain of snooker clubs and American pool bars. Um, as we were building these and developing these, then my focus was to understand the customer and then deliver a service that the customer wanted and would enjoy and in the best way that we possibly could. So it didn't necessarily matter what the end product was or what you were delivering like what you were physically delivering to the customer it was how you did that yeah 
Yeah, and if we deeply understood, you know, what it was that they wanted out of that experience, then then we could deliver that in a better way than our competitors. And that was the thing that always, that was the thing that always fired me up. Um, it was never about making money. Like I would need to make enough money to live on. But beyond that, and I've learned this more and more as I've got older. The thing that motivates me is to is to to do something well, to do it better, to do it in a way that that person because um, it generally has been people that have been her customers as opposed to maybe other businesses, um, can really enjoy and interact with and feel that it was worthwhile. Um, and yeah, that that language, customer-centric, was what I used. And then I met C4DI. And that took me in a whole other direction of you know this new world of service design. Um and, I, and we worked with C4DI for a couple of years. And then 2010, my daughter came to Dundee. So that's probably my next major touch point with Dundee, having been away for almost 20 years, other than vi- visiting family now and again. But Rebecca came to study at Duncan of Jordanston and study textile design. And I think it would be in her second year when she was doing, so it would be 2011, she was doing the module that is now... Um, Changed by Design, our 21st century designer, I think it's called now, at DJ CAD. And she had um, a professor, a guy called Mike Press, I'd never really heard of Mike Press um, in 2011. We maybe started to connect a little on Twitter, but Rebecca would be messaging me or phoning me or when we caught up, she'd be telling me about this inspirational guy, Mike Press, and this thing called Service Design. And, and she bought me a book. She bought me this book called This is Service Design Thinking. Um, and I devoured that. And at that time, I was running a fairly large accounting business in Glasgow, eh, sorry, in Aberdeen, with about 2,000 clients, mainly oil and gas. Um, and it delivered its service in a very traditional way. I was brought in to turn it around. And it just co- that whole experience coincided with C4DI, Rebecca coming to DJ CAD, meeting Mike Press, being introduced to service design. That led me to Lauren Curry, did a little bit of work with Snook, and just I I've, I think I've always been a naturally creative person. It's just never quite found the right way to manifest that. You know, how does that come out? And the way that came out up until 2008-9 was to build businesses that were customer-centric. And then you learn this whole language, methodology, way of doing things that it was like the missing piece of a jigsaw. It's like, ah, right. <laughs> These things I was kind of trying to do I'm now learning an awful lot more about that. And you know, so anytime there was a meetup, I used to go down to, we had an office in Glasgow in those days and Snook would do meetups. I'd just, I'd go down, I'd spend the day in our Glasgow office and then I'd just go and hang out. I'd be the one guy in the room in a suit because <laughs> <laughs> that's still the way that that business worked in those days. And um, But gradually we got rid of the suits and so on and became more comfortable. I think there was a big part of me, Ryan, that in the 90s grew up in the business world and, and being in the business world and being a young guy being ambitious in the business world you kind of have to look like the world's expectation of a business guy mm. so I'd rarely wore a tie but I would generally wear a suit um, and even into the 2000s that was still the case and that's a sort of thing where we have I think we chatting to people about this the other day they were talking about tribes mm. and you conform to your, your tribe and you come part of that and you go to the same bars you listen to the same music and yeah. you sort of yeah, I mean, we long as human beings to fit in, I think. And we once you find that tribe, you sort of fit within that. And then you 
yeah, you generally shop in the same places and you buy the same style of clothes and you, yeah, you do all these things that just sort of make you conform to that and it, you feel happy and that's fulfilling to be part of this bigger thing. Yeah, yeah. And it, it, there was a turning point in that, in the, it would be around about 2010, 11, right about the time, it's Mike Press's, all of this is Mike Press's fault. <laughs> um, but around about that time, I started to challenge myself and question myself, you know, why are you doing that? Why are we doing that? You know, we were transforming this business in Aberdeen. We'd taken it from a really stuffy environment where everything was grey and colour coordinated grey. And we moved into a new office. And that new office was thoughtfully designed. We worked with an interior design business in Aberdeen to create the environment that our staff would want to come into, but more importantly, our clients, and more importantly, as importantly, our clients would enjoy coming into. Because we did a lot of, and again, I didn't know this was design research. We just talked to people and asked them what they liked, what they didn't like. And they would tell us things like, coming to this business, coming to meet an accountant in this office who's sitting across the table from me in a suit and a shirt and a tie, it's as a, it's as uncomfortable as going to the dentist. So we really try not to come. And if your customers are actively trying not to come into your business, that can't be a good thing. So when we started to do the redesign of the office and we had the chance to move, we wanted to create an environment that people would want to come into. And, and you know, you can't do that overnight, but you have to think very carefully about how to do that. So for us, that was simple things like the colour scheme. It was the how we how we designed the reception area and the look and the feel of that. So instead of offering people, you know, a, a cup of instant coffee, we invested in coffee machines. There's a super business up in Aberdeen called Caber Coffee, and and we got wonderful machines from Finlay and his team up there, and we get a big bag of coffee beans dropped off once a week. Um, and we had a great machine downstairs, which is where we catered for our customers, and a great machine upstairs, which was where our staff room was one of our clients in those days was chocolatier so every monday jamie would rock up at the office with a tray full of these little handmade chocolates because again it was that little attention to detail that it would have been easy to serve someone a cup of nescafe or instant other instant coffees that are available and a biscuit but giving them the chance the choice of do you want americano would you like a macchiato you could see people looking at you and this was all part of a transformation we took out the traditional office furniture from meeting rooms. We had the walls painted pink. We had, um, Joanna Basford was one of my um, customers up there. So um, Jo would, um, every year she'd drop in with new prints and here's a, she used to do a calendar. Um, so she'd pop in with a calendar. we get it framed because Joanna's artwork's beautiful. And we made that the centerpiece of the office. We put some sofas in. We'd beanbags in our meeting rooms. And it just slowly but surely transformed the experience of being an accounting business. At the core of it, we're still delivering an accounting service, but we were creating an experience around that. We were designing the service at the same time, mm-hmm. um, but making it a place that people, instead of not wanting to come into because it felt like going to the dentist, we wanted it to be an environment that people would want to come into so they could pop in, they could feel they could come in. They wouldn't feel intimidated by it. They could come in if they were passing. It got to the point, I mean, I left that business in 2012, but it got to the point by the end that people would come in just because. They'd come in for some coffee. They'd pop in and have a chat with their account manager. Um, the chocolates were to die for some people. <laughs> uh, uh, but it was trying to, I guess, trying to look at that whole industry in a different way. And how might we do things differently that are better for the customer 
better for the client. And and that really was at the core of it, about making a better experience for people. So, you know, touching back into Dundee 2010 when Rebecca came, and I found myself more and more coming down, came down for a Petra Kucha night once, because I learned about this organisation called Creative Dundee. And in Aberdeen at the time, there wasn't an equivalent. There was a bit of a cultural vacuum in Aberdeen. And, and, and I was, the, the creative side of me was starting to come out more and more and more. Um, and, and I wasn't finding that source of inspiration in Aberdeen. My daughter was at university in Dundee, so it was another good reason. If I came down for a Petra Kucha night, I could meet Rebecca, we'd go for something to eat, have a chat, and learn from her about what she was doing. You know, she studied as a textile designer, but, but really was immersed. She did the design enterprise module. And um, yeah, just come, touching back into Dundee more and more, there were more and more reasons to come here. Mm-hmm. And we reached a point in 2013 where I'd exited that business in Aberdeen. My son by then was in Gla- he was studying in Glasgow. He's a designer himself. Rebecca was here at DJ CAD. I was spending the summer of 2013 I was working on projects in Brighton, which was great fun, um, and in Glasgow. And we lived in Inverurie, which was half an hour north of Aberdeen, on a good day. And that meant, actually, for big chunks of the week, I wasn't at home. And this seemed mad that our children had grown up, left home, and Joanna's kind of living at home in Inverurie, and I'm living out of a hotel in Glasgow or down in Brighton. Let's move. So we decided in the summer of 2013 to stick our house on the market and find something down here. And we were really lucky. I think if we'd waited six months, we'd still own a house in Inverurie because Aberdeen collapsed. Yeah, you got the out at the, at the right time for sure. We got out at the right time. The house sold in two weeks, um, which actually freaked us out because we had to find somewhere to live down here. Um, and we ended up in uh, an institute in the Carsegaudi. It's kind of, we have family in both cities, so it's equidistant. It kind of works for us. Um, and yeah, that was us back here in looking to the future. So career-wise, mm. what did you what, what did you move on to then? Yeah, I, I moved on to, I, I probably spent I spent at least 6 months trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. I was thinking about consultancy work. I'd, um, I've been fortunate enough over the years to to sit on the board of a number of different companies, so I did a bit of that. Um, I was invited to join the board of Scottish Cycling. In those days, I was a big cyclist, a competitive cyclist, to get a chance to um, to join the board there and influence the direction of the sport. That was really interesting. So I, I was there during the Commonwealth Games in Glasgow, which is a brilliant experience. Um, and so I mentioned the project with Robert Gordon with RGI, and, and my, my main point of contact there was a guy called John Park, Dr. John Park, who was head of entrepreneurship at RGU at the time. Um, and on November, it was November 2013, I was on a bus on the way to Brighty Ferry one day and John phoned me and he said, Ali, what are you doing? I said, I'm not really sure. I'm, well, I'm on a bus on the way to Brighty Ferry at the moment. Um, and he explained that that a, a guy we both knew, um, Gary McEwen, who uh, runs an organisation called Elevator. Um, Gary was on the court at the University of Dundee and was helping the university to appoint a head of entrepreneurship and would I be interested? Gary and John had had a chat knowing that John had done a similar role at RGU Gary had thought about me and wondered what John thought whether I would be interested in that and the long story short was I ended up being appointed 
as the head of enterprise and entrepreneurial strategy at the University of Dundee, which I wasn't able to take up until August 2014 because of the Commonwealth Games. I was committed with Scottish Cycling. Um, but I think it was the 4th of August 2014, I rock up at the University of Dundee as their first head of enterprise and entrepreneurial strategy, which is the first time since I left Ernst & Young in 1992 that I hadn't had the responsibility for a P&L. Because effectively, either as a company's accountant, finance director, or owning my own business, I'd been responsible for everything. Mm. It was liberating. Because I wasn't, you know, the principal, Pete Downs, had that responsibility. I had this small but but important job to do at the university two-ish days a week to design a strategy for enterprise and entrepreneurship for the university. And Pete and, and his court had the vision to create the role um, and to pretty much give me free reign to at least go out and do the research and come back and recommend to the university. So what, what's what the brief for that? Do. What are they, what, ultimately, what are they yeah. looking to do? Ultimately, what they were looking to do then and, and continue to look to do now is to create more of a culture of entrepreneurship within the student and actually also within the staff community within the university. And if you think about this university here in Dundee and many others that have um, historically been really good at spinning out their research into businesses. So in Dundee, People Access Shield was one of the very first spin-outs from the University of Dundee. It's now a huge global company. Dundee has tended to be pharma companies that have um, you know, been spun out from the university. That's been staff and research. There's a drive from Scottish government to provide students with more opportunity to engage with entrepreneurship, not necessarily to create entrepreneurs, but at least to give students those enterprising skills so that when they go out into the marketplace, they're more fit for purpose to use that the language of the Scottish government at the time. Mm-hmm. So we set about trying to understand what was happening in the university, effectively map instances of enterprise and entrepreneurship at the University of Dundee. And there were a couple of really big hotspots um, and I suppose you would exp- one of them was Duncan of Jordan's and you kind of expect that because of the nature of design and, and what you end up doing as a design student and graduate. Um, the other hotspot was computing. Um, and maybe that, given Dundee's history and heritage, was an obvious one. There were other places you'd expect to find enterprise and entrepreneurship that didn't, you know, didn't exist at the time. But we, we mapped it, we took our time. I took my time to map that fairly limited resources and we mapped it and then working with Gary, we started to write a strategy for the university. And the strategy that we wrote for the university, which still is the strategy today, was about using Dundee's strengths and the University of Dundee's strengths so that if we're going to teach students to be enterprising and entrepreneurial, how can we tap into the strengths of the university and the city and give them something that's unique? And the really obvious thing to me in that strategy and designing that strategy was design. And of course, by this point, I've had four, well, actually six years learning about design and understanding and gaining an understanding of what design was and using design in my own businesses. We were um, at that point, probably not yet a UNESCO city of design, but very close to becoming a city of design. The V&A was about to start coming out of the ground back then, um, Museum of Design. And 
just you just have to look at Duncan of Jordanston and how it ranks every year. It's one of the best, if not the best, art and design school in the UK. So it, it was just it seemed incredibly obvious to us that at the heart of this strategy should be design. Mm -hmm. So we're going to write a strategy about enterprise and entrepreneurship. It needs to be it needs to have design at the core. So what if we taught every student, every student that comes through the university, irrespective of subject, the principles of design thinking? What if we introduced them to a different approach, a different way to see the world? We gave them some tools that they could go out and use. And that's what we did. We, I remember presenting the strategy to the board, well, to Pete and the senior management team um, towards the end of 2014. And I expected a grilling. And I think I had three questions. And then they said, great, bash on. And so we did. And um, yeah, I, I lasted a couple of years. I think I realised that that I've been used to being my own boss. I've been used to running my own businesses for most of my life, um, or at least being a, an, a part owner of a business. And the first six months at the University of Dundee were the most fun because, because it was going out and doing research. And I was visiting other universities in the UK, seeing what they were doing. I had the chance to go to a few conferences across the world. Um, Gary was out partly... He was out in the States, partly on behalf of Elevator, but also in the university. We came back and said, this is what entrepreneurship looks like in the best universities in the world. Um, how can we use that with this overlay of design to create something for Dundee? So it was a really creative period. And then once it was approved, it becomes much harder because then it's about implementing. Hmm. And often implementing in environments where people are incredibly busy, they're stressed to the max. And I'm coming along and saying, we should do this thing. And... You know, I had to had to really use my powers of negotiation and um, and help people to understand why this was valuable. And one of the biggest challenges was the word entrepreneur and entrepreneurship. And you know, I had this job title, this very long card, which said head of enterprise and entrepreneurial strategy. And an entrepreneur is a word that people struggle with, and I struggle with. I think yeah, it's, it's got it's got a lot of stigma attached to it potentially, um, and it's something. When I hear it, I'm always kind of like, uh, is that someone hiding behind that term because there's not a lot of substance there? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I find it difficult. And I also, like, I'm very interested to get your take on the difference between, well, to find out what you feel an entrepreneur is, mm. what that word actually means, and what the difference between a designer and an entrepreneur is. So I guess part of the answer to that is semantics. I was listening to a podcast, I listened to a lot of podcasts, um, and Lauren Curry, who many people will know, Red Jotter, Lauren was talking on this podcast, and you know, she equally has a problem with the word entrepreneur, and, and, uh, and she was saying in this podcast, I don't think you can call yourself an entrepreneur, I think the market needs to decide, as opposed to, because it's, I see this, I see this um, quite a lot now, where you'll get 22, 23 year old people saying, I'm an entrepreneur. And really, are you? I think. And but what what yeah, does that really mean? I, uh, yeah. Do you, I mean, does it mean that you've got a track history of creating successful businesses? If or? We look, and so Gary and I did a bit of work on this as part of our research. What's entrepreneurship? And and you know, there's a there's a whole school of thought that you can't teach entrepreneurship. You either have it innately or you don't. And I I maybe don't don't necessarily subscribe to that. Entrepreneurship is about seeing an opportunity identifying a need or problem and setting about to solve it which is what a designer does yeah yeah um 
Uh, historically, that's been applied to the world of business. And historically, the way that entrepreneurship has come about is that so the, the, the business approach to entrepreneurship, and then we'll come back to the designer approach to solving problems, but the, the business approach to solving problems has historically been a single individual seeing a problem, deciding on the solution, and then setting about to try and fix it on their own. Dyson's a classic example. Did it brilliantly. But for every Dyson, there's 99 people that didn't do it well because they've done it in isolation. They've seen a problem that they thought existed and they've set about solving it and creating a solution. I think we also, so we, we, we create figureheads. We create the Jonathan Ives, mm -hmm. the um, Elon Musks, these people who sit at the head of these companies. And okay, yeah, they have massive influence, they have the vision, they, they run this, but there, there's a lot behind the scenes, there's a lot of people helping, there's a lot of expertise that that is driving their vision and their goals. There is, but again, in, in many large organisations, those people will be doing what they're instructed to do, to bring that vision to reality. And what I've learned in the last 10 years of working in and around design is that there's a different way to do things. And that problem that you're trying to solve might not be the actual problem. So if we just spend a bit of time up front trying to really understand what you think the problem is and doing our research, then narrowing it down, then there's maybe a chance we can solve the right problem. Seven out of ten, I was reading a, I was reading a statistic, reading a magazine the other day, uh, online because I don't buy magazines anymore these days, um, but this was, this was talking about businesses that had failed and, and on average seven of those ten, seven of seven out of ten of those businesses that had failed had failed because they'd created something that nobody actually wanted or needed. And I think that's the fundamental difference. Because as a designer, you learn to ask the questions to get to the root of the problem. And then, if we think of the double diamond, then you start to create potential solutions and prototype and test and then take it out. And I think that process that we teach, I'm still involved in teaching at Duncan of Jordan's then, that process that we teach, um, gives the designer a much better chance to create a solution that will work than that traditional business approach of just diving headlong into what you think is the right thing to do. And probably up till about 2005, I would have been the, the latter. I'd have been just diving head in because I think it's the right thing. And the thing I've learned over these last 10 years, the, the really deep thing I've learned is, is to listen an awful lot more than I talk. And, to, and when I do talk, to ask the right questions and an entrepreneurship kind of diving around all over the place in this but bringing it back to entrepreneurship you know there is this when you use the word entrepreneur people people see this guy in a suit in their mind their mind's eye mm -hmm. you know and they might see donald trump i remember putting that on a slide at the university one day that's like there's your classic entrepreneur so i, I made a point when i had that role at the university never to never to wear a suit I'll generally be in jeans and a t-shirt because I had to break barriers down and I had to, this, this was the language that I was given. This is the language that the Scottish government want us to use. We kind of have to use it, but we had to redefine what entrepreneurship meant. So I would make it my job to seek out people within the university that were doing interesting things. People like Sue Black, who, Dame Sue Black, who's one of the most entrepreneurial people you'll ever meet. Not a classic entrepreneur, but if we're going to reframe what entrepreneurship is, there you go. Joanna Basford, Haley Scanlon. You know, these guys are brilliant entrepreneurs. They won't use that language themselves. So if you 
could be given the power to reinterpret that mm-hmm. word. Um, is there anything that you've come across or anything you've thought that if you could only just switch that word out and call people this instead or describe them in this way instead, that it would be better? Yeah, it's a really hard one. Um, it's a really hard one. You know, there's, there's, there are other words you could use that maybe don't quite sum it up. There's innovator. One of the problems I have with innovation as a word at the moment is I think a lot of people use it, but then actually don't do it. Mm-hmm. What they're probably doing is iterating, not truly innovating. So you could be an innovator. Um, within the education space, we tended to use the word enterprising more often than entrepreneurial. Um, and the entrepreneurs, this thing, I, I read something the other day. So we've got mumpreneurs, we've got youpreneurs, we've got solopreneurs. There was a, someone, someone described themselves as a cakepreneur the other day. Like, what the, f- <laughs> you know, what is that about? Um, I, I think that the, the hardest thing to reframe that and to redesign that word is that it's become so, so well used now that, that, you know, someone can rock up and say, I'm an entrepreneur, at least have an idea what it means. Yeah. I don't know how, I honestly, I would struggle to know how to reframe I don't like it. You're a business owner, you know, the, the language that people use when we talk to them, when we set up our new business and we launched this accounting business last year, we, we did over 100 interviews and just spoke to people and listened. And, and one of the things we wanted to understand was how people describe themselves. So people say things like, I work for myself. I'm self-employed. I'm a designer. I've got a small business. I own my own business. In 100 interviews, nobody said I'm an entrepreneur. So when we wrote the content and created the content for our website, it was based on all of those interviews and the research that we did. And we used the language that the people that we interviewed used. Because the people we interviewed were our target audience. So we really thoughtfully put that together. So we tried to avoid that kind of language because the media likes to use the word entrepreneur. It's sexy. You know, it maybe gets some sound bites. It's searchable. It's clickable. But very few people describe themselves as an entrepreneur. So let's move. You sort of mentioned the new business. Hmm. Um, let's talk a little bit about that and then the reason for you going back into accounting. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting one. So, you know, back here in two thousand and thirteen, did the university thing till February 2016. So that was two days a week at the university. The other three days I was doing some board stuff, I was doing some consulting, um, and I'd, I'd started to do customer experience work. So working with people like Volkswagen, RBS, a lot of smaller brands, and I was working um, in the summer of 2016 with Zero, the accounting software guys, um, and they had brought me in to run a customer experience program for their accounting partners. They, at that time, they had 4,000 accountants in the UK that were their route to market, really. And they wanted to help those accountants deliver better customer experiences. So I was brought in, ran some webinars and an online master class for them. And by now, by now, Ashton McGill as a business was me and my son, Andy, who's a designer. And we were kind of doing stuff together occasionally and really just working as a pair of freelancers through an umbrella company. Um, and he was saying to me at the time, because I was really struggling to get accountants to think about the concept of a customer being mm. at the centre of what they did. 
And he was saying to me, like, Dad, why are you trying to teach these accountants to deliver great services and getting frustrated about it? Why don't we do this? And I was like, no, I'm enjoying being a designer. I, I, I don't want to do that. I said, I don't want to be an accountant again. Um, so I pushed back and I was saying, no, I'm quite enjoying doing this consulting work. It's interesting. It's good fun. Um, and I'm really not up for that just now. But, but Andy persevered and every month we'd have this conversation again. And about this time last year, he, um, he asked again. And at that point, Volkswagen had just postponed another but a work that we were about to do, and this was happening regularly. When you're dealing with big brands, they they control the diary. You don't control the diary. And if they postpone a two-week piece of work by a month, the week before it's due to happen, you're just left with a two-week hole in your diary and no income. And I was just getting frustrated with this. So I relented and I said, okay, okay, let's look at it. Let's do our research. Let's take all of the things that we've learned through design and apply that to our own business. So rather than make any assumptions about what the market wants, let's go and ask. So that began the process of doing these interviews. We did some online and the majority offline. And with some of those people, we sat down for a good length of time to really deeply understand their experience of accounting, if they had any, if they didn't, what they would like, what they, what they wouldn't like, what they needed, what their problems were, so we could really understand that. Um, we then used that, the results of that to start framing our so we use a tool called the business model canvas so we built out our business model canvas the value proposition for the the business um we did some customer persona work we tried to make sure that we deeply understood the people we were going to serve that then informed the content that we created for our website and we launched that in september late august early september first clients were on board in september 2017, so just a few months ago. And and it's it's been a really interesting exercise because I've never set up a business this way before. You know, I've, I've just set it up and then we've kind of built it as we went. This time we took a really considered, thoughtful approach to it. And, and the research was the most valuable thing that we did because there were patterns that start to emerge and people started to say the same things. And the most common phrase that people would say was, "My accountant's a lovely guy, but," <laughs> <laughs> and then that would, you know, that would lead into a whole series of different stories. And and we used that, you know, we, so we identified the pain points and we started to, we took our business out to the market, I suppose, and really quickly people started to um, to get in touch to ask if um, we could meet, and before we knew it, we were taking on clients, and we hit the turn of the year there with thirty clients. As you and I are talking just now, it's mid-February, we're at 41, I think. And these are a broad range of businesses, self-employed people, some fairly large organisations, some in, there's a cluster here in Dundee, there's a cluster in Glasgow, there's a cluster in Aberdeen. We've got a handful south of the border, which is really interesting for me because the last accounting business I ran, the one in Aberdeen, was like almost everybody was in Aberdeen. But technology today enables us to support people anywhere. So why do you think these people are choosing you over... I mean, there's there's, there's a yeah. lot of accountants, right? Yeah. All over the UK. There why is. do they choose you? Yeah, there is. Accounting hasn't changed significantly. You know, I started... I left school in 1986. And I started my training in 1986. And as an accountant, you're trained to be a technically capable 
person, technician, I suppose. So you learn all this technical stuff about accounting and tax. And in 1986, not a single moment of your training was spent on understanding humans and how to interact with people and how to deliver service. And when we were, when we were doing the research last year, we looked at how accounting training is delivered in 2017. And funnily enough, it hasn't really changed. You know, there's some technology now and it's part of that process, but it's entirely technical training. And actually a lot of professions are like that. Law is like that. We found out that architecture is like that. Surveying happens to be like that. So people go through those professions being taught how to be a capable technician and then they get sent out into the world. I mean, you could also argue that, that design's like that. And that, that I set up as a, as a studio and I did didn't know how to do the accounts. I didn't know how to... I'd only learnt from client service and people that I'd worked with in an agency and project managers I'd worked for, how to manage my time, how to actually bring clients in. You, that's not something you're taught in your training. Mm. That's things that you have to pick up along the way. So it's all those skills in order to make your business flourish um, and really sort of change the way you deliver things. There's all this other stuff that you need to learn. I guess the mindset, though, it's a mindset thing, right? So I think as a designer, you're... T- you're, you're, you're it's something, for most people it's innate, but you're you're very human centered, user centered. And the, the the teaching and education helps to drive that. The teaching and education in accounting and law or architecture, many of these professions is very much about the technical thing, the thing you do. And although ironically, although accounting is called a professional service, there was very little service being delivered in the market. So accountants deliver services to clients rather than deliver services for clients. And that one little word in that phrase is significant. And we set about, so accounting is accounting. You know, the law around how you prepare a set of accounts is the law, it's the company, it's company law. And then there's accounting convention that sits on top of that. But that's kind of fact. You can't change that. But what you can change is how you deliver it. And so a big part of our research, back to listening, was how people, their frustrations. So my accountant's a lovely guy, but... I only get to see him once a year. My accountant's a lovely guy, but I don't understand what it is that he says to me. My accountant's a lovely guy, but he won't use online software. My accountant's a lovely guy, but... And there were just so many of those. And we and we sat back and said, okay, well, what what is the ideal way to deliver this service? And we used some of the tools and techniques that we've learned from working with people like Mike and Hazel at Open Change and um, Snook and so on. And, and mapped out the process that we wanted to deliver for our clients and the experience we wanted our clients to have. So I think that's the fundamental difference is that you can deliver services to clients the way you want to deliver them or you can deliver them in a way that the clients want to receive them and strip out the jargon. It's a big thing for us and as we bring new people into our team we set them down and we have conversations about why we do what we do and, our, and we have all of our processes mapped because we have to. It's a professional service that we're delivering. It's got to be right. We're helping people look after their money. But when we have to communicate a piece of information, then we always challenge ourselves. And I'm still doing this to this day. If I'm that person that's receiving this email that's about their payroll and they don't understand accounting or tax or payroll terminology, are they going to know what this email means? Or actually, should it be a video message that we send them? Or is it a call? Or do we go see them face to face? So we're really always thoughtfully considering the customer, the Mm -hmm. client. And therefore, everything that we do is designed around them and their needs. And that 
and it's a subtle difference, but it's as big a reason um, as the fact that we don't call ourselves an accounting practice or an accounting firm, because that terminology puts you into a mindset, and that's the traditional world. We're a business that happens to deliver accounting services, but we're also a business that happens to deliver customer experience services to Volkswagen. So we don't want to pigeonhole ourselves. That's why we're not called Ashton McGill Accounting. We played with that for a little while. We're just like, no, we're just Ashton McGill. We're just who we are and we do what we do. And we'll let the market decide what they want to call us and how they want to describe us. So be, I mean, beyond that, you're mm. also doing other <laughs> little side projects, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, one, obviously, I'm going to be interested in is the podcast. Mm. So why, why did you start a podcast? The podcast, an interesting one. Again, it was one of these things that had been on our on our, our kind of map, I suppose, of things we wanted to do for a while. Um, I've, I've been interested in creating content for a long time. Um, done, I've, been, I've been doing that for 10 years. I, my first blog was 2005. And, and I, I listened to a lot of podcasts myself. And I played around with video last year. I was doing a weekly vlog, which took a huge amount of time. And I got tired, actually, of setting up the camera, walking back and walking towards the camera and doing that day in, day out. It's fine if you're Casey and I start and you've got a team of people and millions in the bank. I didn't have either of those. Um, but as a, as a consumer of podcasts, I love to hear people's stories. And our research last year taught us a lot of things about our ideal customers. And our ideal customers are... Our typical customers are people who are forward thinking. They are not afraid to challenge the status quo. They're interested in how other people are doing things in other industries. And and we thought, wouldn't it be an interesting way to talk to our target audience by interviewing people who are our target audience telling their story? And, and also, frankly, it's a selfish way for me to learn about really interesting people doing interesting things. And so... In December, we launched our first podcast. So we're we're only seven episodes in, so it's still really, really young by comparison to yourself and to many others. But we're starting to get into a rhythm with it. And each time I record an interview, I feel like I'm getting better in that chair and thinking about how to tell those, how to help people tell those stories. Um, and I guess that's the motivation for doing it is, is being able to share really interesting stuff with interesting people. And the beauty of podcast over, say, video is that the average watch time of a YouTube video is about one and a half minutes. So you can't really take a 50-minute conversation, which is the kind of length our podcast interviews typically are. And how do you distill that down to a minute and a half? It's really difficult. Whereas, you know, the podcast interview, I listen to your podcasts when I'm out running, when I'm out walking, when I'm in the car. And it's a story and there's something really interesting that captivates you. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons that podcasts for us are, uh, they're really worth doing. Yeah, it's that sort of people can, it's that active passive. You can be doing something else at the same time and you can still like learn a whole bunch of things and learn about someone that's doing amazing things in the city and like 
it's a brilliant medium for delivering that content in a way that's very accessible. Um, I think that that's one of the main beauties of, of podcasting. Um, but how do you um, how do you decide who you bring on mm. to the podcast? So like, there's, there's a lot of people, and yeah, and you. I mean, my one's very much Dundee focused, yeah. but but you're sort of you could go anywhere. You could ask anyone. So how do you decide who's right for the podcast? Yeah. So from the in the early days, we've uh, they've been fairly Dundee centric to start because we made the decision we wanted to do the interviews face to face like you and I think the dynamic that you get from that I've been interviewed in a lot of podcasts over the last few years when I was doing stuff at university and the customer experience and um, and and it's and it's fine when you're on the other end of Skype or Zoom or something but it's not the same dynamic as you have when you're sitting facing each other um, so there's a practical practical reason to in the short term doing these in Dundee there's also some really interesting people here whose stories we could tell and I mentioned, mentioned Sue Black earlier Sue was our first Sue and Neve Nick Dade were our first guests on the podcast um, and I had to have the good fortune to work with them so I, I knew the story and I knew it would be an interesting one so that's I suppose that's our reference point is who are the people that are doing interesting things and how can we get them to talk to us for an hour about what they're doing so for instance we've got it's probably now going to be in the next couple of months but we've got a series of interviews lined up to do in london around the what's now called fintech financial technology some really interesting young businesses doing things very very differently uh, that that will involve us being in london for two or three days uh, and just rocking up at people's office and having a conversation and we're constantly looking to see who are those people and also talking to our clients. Where do you get your motivation from? The first first meeting we have with a client, we never talk about accounting. We're not there to talk about accounting. I want to talk about them. I want to understand what drives them, what motivates them. Why do they do what they do? What are their goals and ambitions? And we learn a lot of stuff in those conversations. And that helps to inform where we might go next in a conversation and where we might look, and who we might talk to. Second last podcast, as we speak, that we published was with John Alexander, leader of the City Council here in Dundee. And, you know, two months ago, I could never have imagined interviewing effectively a politician for a podcast, but what a fascinating young man he is and a brilliant story he told and a great conversation that we had. And, and that's probably the episode so far that we've had the most feedback on. So... It's, it's a, there's a thing for us here about, you know, how do we seek out those people who are doing things differently? Where are they? And then we've got to think about, okay, logistically, how do we get in a room with them? How are we going to do that? And we just have to keep figuring that one out. I'm looking forward to doing one in Spain somewhere, somewhere warm. Because <laughs> I can get that, that's a tax deductible expense, Ryan. <laughs> there's the accountant coming back on you. Yeah. Always comes back. Always comes one of the other, I mean, just briefly, I want to mention is the um, the, the photo a day project mm. based in, in Dundee for this year, which is obviously quite an important year. Yeah, so I can claim nothing, no credit on that. It's Andy's project, entirely Andy's project, Dundee in uh, 2018, and he moved to the. So Andy grew up in Inverurie, most of his young life, went to Glasgow to study, um, and then moved to Dundee in March last year, 2017. So he's moved to Dundee, he and his girlfriend Becca have moved to Dundee at a really interesting time, obviously in the city's development. Hadn't ever lived in Dundee before. Um, grew up with me as a St Johnston supporter. 
and then to St Johnston and Dundee there's a little love lost between those two teams and cities Perth and Dundee um, but actually he's really enjoyed being in the city and living in the city and working in the city and, uh, in this time of transformation and he had decided I think he started the genesis of this idea probably goes back to last autumn thinking about a big year in the city's life he's a photographer an amateur photographer passionate photographer um, and, and was thinking about I guess it's a side project what can I do how can I use my photography skills and, and came up with this concept of capturing the city in 2018 as it transforms and and, and doing that as a photography project one picture a day of the city and as it changes and you know we're now um, you know almost a couple of months into that it's been hugely for him enjoyable it's great for me watching my son and do this and incredibly proud of him you know center page spread in the evening telegraph a couple of weeks ago i mean that's that's fame um and and actually what he's finding with it is that it's teaching him about the city because you know it's easy to walk around the center of the city and take pictures it's less easy to get out to fintry and to go up to the hill town and and but He's using the project as a way of seeing the city and learning about the city. And I imagine out. it'll be forcing him to get out. Yeah, yeah. So he's often on his bike. You know, he'll literally get on his bike and go and explore the city. And and he's met some fascinating people as a result of that. And so the, the whole project is about, it's not just about buildings, it's about the people in the city as well. Um, and yeah, I think it's going to be fascinating watching how that project... Um, how that project unveils itself over the course of the year. He has some ideas about what he'd like to do at the end of that project and what it might turn into, um, which I'll leave for, for him. I'll let him tell that story. But yeah, it's 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 lovely to see. It's it's nice to watch him kind of fall in love with the city that when he was a wee boy and we lived in Perth, you know, we came here to watch the football and then we went away again. And, and his vision of Dundee would have been this big industrial space and... You know, you come and you live in it, and you learn that it's very different. One, they they've noticed having lived in, you know, they lived in the Merchant City in Glasgow, big city, very disparate, and his girlfriend's very creative as well, and and they they've loved how connected everything is here. Which, when you live in a bigger city, it, it just isn't. And Dundee has this almost power that manages to pull everything in, together, and, and probably a lot of the credit for that goes to Gillian and Creative Dundee. But the city itself is very collaborative and he's been embraced, his project's been embraced, he's got other photographers wanting to work with him. This afternoon he's off being photographed by another photographer for their project. You know, it's building connections and I think that's really valuable. And so in that similar vein, talking about the city going forward, mm-hmm. um, just to finish up, what what do you want to see in the future? Like, What, what do you want out of, what do you want to see happen mm. in the city? I think that when we we live in an interesting time where, and I remember Dundee. My my first office in Dundee was City House in the Overgate, which is about to be demolished. Um, we were on the top two floors of City House. Um, it was a very industrial city. Still had a lot of, you know, manufacturing businesses that employed hundreds, if not thousands, of people. And Dundee's obviously changed a lot in that time. And and you know that change has brought opportunity but it's also brought a lot of challenges to the city and I think our 
I think our biggest challenge now is how we take all that great stuff that's happened in the waterfront but actually use it as a catalyst to solve some of the social problems that we've got. And so if I have a hope for the future, it's that we can find a way to make that happen. We've got all these brilliant creative minds here in Dundee. We've also got a lot of people that live in poverty. 28% of children in this city live in poverty, which just that shouldn't happen in this day and age. So, you know, as as a community, as designers, as entrepreneurs, whatever we want to call ourselves, you know, the challenge for me is how might we use our collective capabilities to solve those real problems? Because no one in 2018 should live in that type of um, situation. But the sad reality of, of modern society is it actually is increasing. So how can we, what can we do about that? And I don't know if that's a, you know, it's a wicked problem. I don't know if it's a solvable problem, but, but I'd like to see us use all the good that's happening in Dundee and all the investment that will come in and all the things that will happen to just take some of that and some of that thinking and creativity and try and apply it to, you know, this big, that big, that big wicked problem that we've got here. So if anyone wants to come and meet you guys, have a coffee, how do they get in touch? Where are you on the internet? Um, pretty much everywhere. Uh, my, I guess the main platform for me is Twitter. And on Twitter, you'll find me at Ali, A-L-I underscore McGill. Instagram's the same. Kind of not a big Facebook user these days. For our, for business stuff, you'll find us on LinkedIn. But you know, if anyone wants to have a chat or just connect, come visit us in our new office. We're moving into the flour mill shortly. Then get in touch on Twitter. And you know, I, I like meeting people. I enjoy meeting people. And I'd be delighted if anybody wants to, to come and have a natter. Great. Thank you. Big thanks to Ali for coming on um, and doing the episode. I hope you enjoyed that. Um, yeah, I thought it was a really interesting discussion. We got on some nice little topics. And if you don't, uh, go and give uh, Ali's podcast a listen. Um, as I said, I, I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well as a direct link to the episodes that I feature in. Um, and also go and check out that project. So the, the Dundee 2018 Photo of a Day uh, run by his son. Uh, again, nice little you can follow it on Instagram. And that's it for this week. If you don't follow already, it's at cccdundee on Twitter and Instagram and facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash cccdundee. So yeah, until next week, goodbye.